0: Well, let's talk about last week. Uh, Prophecy is superior to tongues because it's always intelligible. True, that seems to be Paul's point about intelligibility. That's the advantage it has. You don't need an interpreter. Paul recognizes sometimes the tongue speaker is not able to restrain their speaking. Uh, False, he seems to indicate they can control, just like prophecy is under control of the prophet. And so he says... They should speak, and only certain ones should speak, and they shouldn't speak if there's no interpreter. So it can be controlled. There was the possibility a prophecy given in the church could be false. True. be true, true. True. Because that's why they have to be judged. So you have to have a judge to determine. Just like you can have false prophets in the Old Testament, you could have someone come in and say something false. Incorrect, invalid. You can't just accept just because somebody gets up and says, "Hey, God told me." I'm tell you. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever had that happen before, but people have told me over the years, "God told me that what you're teaching is wrong and false and this kind of stuff." So there was the gift of discerning spirits, judging. We'll talk about uh, judging. We talk about judging prophecy. Paul says uh, we'll have uh, two, three prophets and then someone will judge you know, the prophecies. Paul allows a maximum of four people to prophesy on the service. Well, he says two or three should prophesy. Remember, he saw on tongues he says a maximum of two or three tongues. He says on prophecy, he seems to say two or three also as kind of a general rule. He doesn't say uh, a maximum of four, really. He says two or three should prophesy, and then uh, someone else. All right, so we are looking at um, chapter 14, finishing up chapter 14 now. And uh, in chapter 14, 26 through 40, we're dealing with regulations for worship including spiritual gifts. And he regulates tongues and prophecies in verses 26 through 33. And he gives various regulations about first tongues. Uh, If there's no interpreter, they shouldn't speak. And then he talks about prophecy. Um, And then uh, we come to the role of women in the church. This is thirty-three B, fourteen thirty-three B through thirty-six. We left off last time, finished verse twelve and thirty-three A. For the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets, or God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Now he talks about the role of women in the church. Uh, 33B through 36. And he begins. He says uh, in verse 33B. As in all the congregations of the Lord's people, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. How about that? I say here, Paul begins by informing the Corinthians that The instructions he demands they follow were the standard practice in the public worship of all the churches. Some interpreters have taken Paul's demand for silence of women as an absolute rule. So this was probably the general way these passages were generally interpreted probably for a good part of church history. The, the, The role of women in society was pretty much like this. And so... Uh, This is a common interpretation. I'll show you here. Um, But this requirement for absolute silence would seem to be in direct contract with 11.5, where Paul allows for women to pray and prophesy in the assembly. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So we talked about that in 11.5, that a woman could pray or prophesy in the assembly that is, pray, or the miraculous gift of prophesying. Paul seems to allow for that. Well, how do you, how do you get that? Uh, how do you, how do you juggle that? How do you explain that if he really is allowing that with this silence, which is pretty, you know, pretty uh, absolute here? How do you do it? All right. In order to get around this permission in chapter eleven. And it's been argued that Paul does not really allow women to pray and prophesy in chapter 11 but he waits until chapter 14 to forbid it because in chapter 11 he wants to only deal with the issue of head coverings so for instance if you, you can look at numerous interpreters John Calvin, Charles Hodge who was a famous, very famous Presbyterian theologian at Princeton Seminary in the 19th century very well known person So he was adopting Calvin's view, and you'll see others. So the idea is that, okay, Paul didn't really want women to pray and prophesy, but his issue in chapter 11 is the head covering. So he wants to say women must wear head coverings. And so he just says if a woman prays or prophesies, she must wear a head covering. But he's not really going to deal with that problem till later on, that they shouldn't actually even be prophesying at all. Um so that's that's one way to try to get around that permission. Uh, so Paul does not condemn the era of women speaking in church in chapter eleven because he first wants to condemn the era of women not wearing a head covering in church. But I say it is rather difficult to believe that Paul spends fifteen verses in chapter eleven. Requiring the adornment of women when they pray and prophesy, if he does not actually believe they are allowed to do it in the first place, it just seems rather ridiculous, doesn't it? That Paul is going to spend all these verses about praying and prophesying with their head covered, if he doesn't really believe they should pray and prophesy to start off with, you know what's the what's the point of all chapter eleven? Doesn't seem to make much sense then, but. You still read this interpretation occasionally. I was looking at a commentary by a missouri Senator Lutheran, and he adopts this uh, particular kind of uh, viewpoint here that Paul is just tackling one problem at a time. He doesn't actually allow either one of them. Um, Others believe, here's another way to get around this problem of Allowing women to speak in chapter eleven, silence in chapter fourteen. Here's another way. Others believe that eleven five, chapter eleven, refers to private meetings in homes. While here in fourteen thirty-four, Paul is dealing with normal church assemblies. So that's what's a common way. So in chapter eleven, when he says women can pray and prophecy, well, that's in kind of meeting in homes, small, you know, gatherings or whatever. But in the assembly, they're not allowed to speak. So the famous theologian uh, who came after (laughs) uh, Hodge uh, at Princeton, B.B. Warfield, in the late 19th, early 20th century, John MacArthur, and his commentary holds this particular view. I'll say, however, it is doubtful that early Christians who normally met in-house churches, they didn't have any buildings, in those days, any buildings to meet in generally. They didn't build any buildings, certainly not in the first century. Um, It's difficult to believe who normally met in house churches would have ever made such a distinction between home fellowships and assembled church meetings. Also, it's hard to believe that the Corinthians would have imagined that 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16 referred to meetings in homes but verses 17 through 34, the same chapters speak of observing the Lord's Supper and a church gathering. You know, clearly chapter 11, the latter part is in the church gathering, the Lord's Supper. Why, how did you suddenly switch from the small gathering to the church in the same chapter like that? So that doesn't seem uh, very satisfying in that sense. Now this doesn't trouble, uh, this doesn't uh, probably... You know, you say a guy like MacArthur, you know, he holds this position. It doesn't come up too much for him because we're we're talking about the church gathering as a whole, like we just did. Well, nobody speaks in our church gatherings except the pastor, you know, usually. So, you know, if if MacArthur says women shouldn't speak when I'm speaking, well, nobody's speaking while he's speaking up there, you know. Uh, so. You know, you can hold that position. It doesn't affect how things operate. We operate the same way in our church. Nobody else speaks when the pastor is speaking in the church gathering like that. But I still think that's an unlikely position. <clears throat> if, as 11.5 would seem to indicate, Paul does not demand total silence of women in the church, what kind of silence is he calling for in 14.34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. A similar example of silence, not meaning total silence, but silence in one kind of speech is found earlier in this chapter where Paul says that if someone speaks in a tongue, there must be an interpreter. But if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church, be silent in the church. This does not mean the person with a gift of tongues should never say anything in the church. Paul means the person should keep quiet in the church with respect to the topic I'm discussing, that is, do not speak in tongues. Speaking in tongues is what Paul is discussing in 1 Corinthians 14 27 through 28. But starting in verse 29, he turns to prophecies and the judging of prophecies. So remember, last week he talked about tongues, their regulation. And then, beginning in verse 29, he talks about judging prophecies. Verse 29 is a general principle about prophesying that divides itself into two halves. With the first half talking about prophesying. Two or three prophets should speak. And the second half talking about judging those prophecies and others should weigh carefully what is said. It is this oral weighing of prophecy that Paul forbids Paul, uh, women to engage in because it assumes the possession of a superior authority in matters of doctrinal or ethical instruction. So there's the interpretation I'm following. This is a difficult passage. There are other interpretations. This is the most common one you see today that you read about. It makes the pretty good sense to me that what Paul is forbidding here is the judging of the prophecies that we've just been talking about because that would involve superior authority in matters. What Paul says, then when Paul says, we are not, they are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says, he views speaking allowed, uh, speaking allowed to judge prophecies as a governing or ruling function in the congregation the opposite of being submissive to male leadership in the church. As the law says, is probably referring to the creation order in Genesis 2.20b-24. through 24. He's probably thinking about the fact that the man was created first, remember? No suitable helper was found for him. So the Lord calls him to get put into a sleep, took one of his ribs... He made woman, he'd taken out. The man said, this is not bone of flesh, and my flesh, she should be called woman because she was taken out of man. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul referred to this creation account. There is an order in creation. Man was created, woman was created to be man's helper and so forth. So as the law says, probably refers to Genesis 2.20 since Paul explicitly refers to that passage on two other occasions when he discusses female roles remember first corinthians chapter 11 for paul for woman did not come from man did not come from woman but woman from man neither was man created for woman but woman for man so he's talking there about the submission of the wife to the husband and he's going back to this is the creation order first timothy two eleven. a woman should learn in quietness and in full submission I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be quiet. For, why is that? Adam was formed first, then Eve. So Paul does not allow a woman to teach men to have authority over men in the teaching role, in the ruling role in the church. That's why we don't have women pastors in our church. And... So this is a big controversy today, obviously. Some churches have women pastors. And uh, we believe, I believe, that they're ignoring the clear teaching here of 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2 on this particular subject. So what do they say about that? They say, well, Paul is just dealing with a local problem at Ephesus. That Timothy has got some women there, kind of unruly. And so he's just telling the women in Ephesus to keep, keep their mouths shut, you know, but it doesn't apply. But Paul applies this back to the creation order. It doesn't look like it's just local only kind of situation. The passage from Genesis 2 does not command silence, but it does suggest that because man was made first and woman was made for man, some kind of pattern has been laid down regarding the roles the two play. Paul understands from this creation order that woman is to be subject to man, or at least that the wife is to be subject to the husband. This submission would be overturned if a woman were to judge the prophecies given by a man. Paul would not allow any woman to exercise a teaching ministry over men. And the assessment of prophecies falls under that umbrella. The responsibility for evaluating prophecies fell ultimately to the elders who were men. Then in verse 35, Paul adds, If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Paul probably anticipates an evasion of his teaching, evasion. He expects that there might be some women in Corinth who would agree not to pass judgment on any prophecies, but would add questions that could easily lead to making judgments. So he may be fearful that this will, these questions will lead to judgments and discussions about these prophecies. It's not surprising that Paul would say only men can give spoken corrections to prophecies. Such correction is part of the task of teaching and having authority over the congregation, the task that Paul reserves for men in 1 Timothy 2.12. As we read, do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be quiet. But for Paul to restrict this doctrinal guardianship job to men here in 1 Corinthians 14 is entirely consistent with what he says in 1 Timothy 2 and also consistent with his expectation that elders are men they are the husband of one wife and Timothy and Titus so that's how I take it that's how many take it that uh, this judging of prophecy would be sort of an authoritative teaching doctrinal kind of matter that would violate Paul's instructions in Timothy and other places Verse 36, or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? Paul asked two rhetorical questions, should be, that issue a strong rebuke. The word translated or has the idea of, can it be that? Can it be that the word of God originated with you? The word of God means the gospel, the good news. Paul is anticipating there might be some objection to his teaching. Since the gospel did not originate in Corinth, and since it did not come to them alone, are you the only people it's reached? The church has no business acting as if they are the only Christians who matter in the world and can do as they please. The Corinthians' worship is to conform to the character of God and to be in tune with the rest of the churches, according to Paul. Well, we see the authority of Paul's instructions, 1437-38. through 38. If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Paul insists that the things he has written to the Corinthians are the Lord's command and that the best evidence of someone being a prophet or possessing spiritual gifts given by the Spirit will be found in their recognition of this fact. They can prove, uh, they can give, I guess I should say give proof. Somebody should read this stuff first. <laughs> they, <laughs> I'm the most terrible uh, a reader of my own stuff. I mean, I write it and then I read read, read it over Friday night and I find things, but uh, it's just I just have a hard time spotting my own errors. You know, I can spot other I can spot other people's errors. <laughs> That's funny how we can see other people's errors so easily, you know? <laughs> but it's hard to see our own, isn't it? it? Must have something to do with depravity, or something. Yeah? They can. Uh, Give proof of their own genuineness by acknowledging Paul's authority. The passive voice, they will themselves be ignored, is what's called a divine passive, meaning God is the implied agent who will ignore. The idea is that the person who does not accept Paul's apostolic instruction as from the Lord will not be acknowledged by the Lord as a genuine believer. One translation, New Living says, But if you do not recognize this, you yourselves will not be recognized. The verb ignore is, comes from the same root as the word no. in Jesus' statement in Matthew 7.23. I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I'm going to ignore you is the idea here. So Paul says, if you don't listen to what I'm saying as an apostle, if you ignore that, God's going to ignore you because you're not really obviously a true believer if you ignore apostolic instruction. And then we see some concluding comments. Can we summary here? Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. With these verses, Paul summarizes and closes the long exposition, his long exposition, regarding spiritual gifts that began in chapter 12, verse 1. In conclusion, Paul repeats his preference for the prophecy and advises that they should not forbid tongues, since it's a gift of the Spirit, as long as the interpretation is provided, so that they all may be edified. The closing statement, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way, closes out the unit that began with a similar statement in 1426. Everything must be done so the church may be built up. Finally, through that twelve through fourteen, Bill. Huh? <laughs> well, I find it sort of ironic that Paul would go through insisting that the women should remain silent and should not prophesy, should not speak in the church, but then in this concluding summary, he says, "Therefore, my brothers and sisters," mm-hmm. which seems to offset what he just what he just said. Well. Uh, it's you know if women can prophesy, then there's nothing wrong with be eager to prophesy, and forbid speaking in tongues. So I don't see anything there. Do you really? Well, no, because he doesn't. He again. I guess we have to go back to where where it's being done. Is it in a home setting? Is it in a right. church gathering? And he doesn't clarify there. Anymore. Well, the truth is here. Uh, it's sometimes difficult to know how to translate this. There's only one word there that's translated brothers and sisters in the Greek. It's adelphoi, brothers. Usually in most translations, it's just translated brothers, brothers. But uh, translations now are including brothers and sisters, because most of time he's talking, when he says brothers, he's talking to the whole church, brothers and sisters. And he appears to be talking to them. I think, I think this fits the whole church. Uh, they should be eager to prophesy. That, that's that's the positive. That's the, And don't forbid speaking in tongues. So uh, he, Paul's not saying women can't prophesy or any of that. He's just saying they can't judge that prophecy as to whether it's right or wrong, questions about it and so forth. That gets into sort of doctrinal matters and teaching. It is a problem. Now, uh, some believe that, you know, eleven. one, one reason for believing 11.5 uh, is one reason for believing that 11.5, like MacArthur and Calvin, is that it's a small group setting, is because they have trouble with women prophesying at all. And uh, that's the reason for that interpretation, which says he, he doesn't really believe they can. It depends on how you look at prophesying. So I'm allowing women to... I mean, I'm with those who allow it, because... I'm seeing prophecy as simply uh, sort of just a reporter. You're just giving a message. You're just, God impresses you with this, you give it. You're not teaching, you're not explaining scripture, you're just a mouthpiece giving this kind of thing. If that's true, if if we're right about prophecy, then that doesn't violate 1 Timothy in the sense of teaching, doctrine, examining, that kind of thing. But it's true, some have felt... You know those who say, uh, like Calvin did and Hodge did, those and and many, they feel that well, even just prophecy would violate that, just women prophesying. So it's a tough, it's a tough issue. There's no no question. Now it's not a great issue to us today, even though we've gone through all this, because women can't prophesy. Because nobody, I don't believe anybody can prophesy. You know that kind of thing. So it doesn't affect us indirectly in that sense. Uh, the, the Timothy passage does affect us about silence and so forth like that. Um, the pray and prophesy, because of the pray and prophesy, uh, I've always felt that women could pray in church. And I taught that when I was in seminary. And uh, some students, and, and I think it's generally, you know, a lot of people agree with that, that they can Now, if you take the other view, um, uh, that they that they that they have total silence and you wouldn't let them pray. So you could have women pray, and uh, you know. And so I think in inner city, like on, you know, the church I was in before Inner City Baptist, you know, I think they had we had women praying on after you left. Women praying on a Wednesday night. Uh, I think they prayed. They they prayed on a Wednesday night. We don't, sometimes women ask about women praying here. Uh, and reading scripture and stuff and the, the reason pastor Ken gives I think is that he's trying to have a model of male leadership in the church one of the problems we have is as you all know is that we just don't have male leadership is very poor in evangelicals in our churches you know most of the people that come to our the most faithful people are the ladies unfortunately it's very sad so The reason he doesn't do it, uh, say, I think, during when you when they read scripture uh, during the Lord's Supper when we have that, he's trying to promote male leadership. You know, this is a good example. Men should be leading in their homes. They should be doing scripture, that kind of thing. So it's not that he feels like it's wrong. But some would, some might say, yeah, it's it's absolutely wrong. I, I just apply this in my house. Pansy don't say anything. (laughs) You know, you know that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) Look at Jennifer. (laughs) No, I'm just joking. All right, so let's talk about a little bit of the introduction here, maybe about the resurrection, fifteen, chapter fifteen. This is the. Understand the third longest chapter um, in the New Testament, Luke 1, then Luke 22, and then this is a long chapter, 58 verses. Let's see, Paul has now uh, finished with the various issues dealing with the problems of their worship that required correction. 1440 But everything should be done in a fitting and proper way. But not only was their worship out of order, so was their belief or lack thereof in a vital doctrine of the faith, the bodily resurrection of believers. The Corinthians were not denying life after death, as far as we know, but life in a body. Paul tackles this issue in chapter 15, though we do not find out what triggered this lengthy dissertation on the resurrection, until we get to verse 12 where he says how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead that's the problem that Paul is dealing with in this chapter that some of you are saying there is no resurrection of the dead which we understand to mean dead Christians no bodily resurrection of dead Christians how Paul came to be informed of this era, he does not reveal, though it may have come through their letter. Remember, we started chapter 7 and Paul had that expression, now for the matters you wrote about. And then he picks that up a number of times with that Greek phrase, peri dead, Now concerning, now concerning. Going back to that 7.1, 7.25, 8.1, 12.1, he picks it up again in chapter 16.1. So this was right in there, so it may be that this, we don't know how he got this, this particular statement. It may have been something they said in their letter. We're not sure exactly, but it's possibly that. Paul does not say the Corinthians denied the resurrection of Christ. Now that's an important point there. <clears throat> There's nothing in this, as you read through this, there's nothing that says they denied the resurrection of Christ himself. Now, it's going to be tricky here because they're denying the resurrection of believers, but they don't... Paul never says, as we'll read through this, he assumes the resurrection of Christ. He says, that's what you were taught, that's what you believed, and he doesn't give a hint. The point he's going to make is that uh, if, you know, if if Christ was raised in a bodily form, then there's then obviously we could be raised in the bodily form. You can't disconnect the two. They've disconnected the two. We'll see how that works out here. The Corinthians era is probably probably not rooted in some deliberate doctrinal rebellion, but in honest confusion. Now that's just an idea we get from the tone of Paul. Paul seems to be teaching here, instructing. He's not very harsh as he is in some portions of this letter. So apparently there's some confusion here. Given their Greek worldview, which was a belief in the immortality of the soul, of, of the soul, but of the soul only. So, I mean, Greek philosophy—practically all Greek philosophy—believed in the immortality of. We talk about the immortality of the soul, but that's not a fully Christian doctrine. Uh, Christians believe in the resurrection of the body, not just the immortality of the soul. But the Greeks believed just the immortality. They failed to comprehend how an earthly body that is physical and perishable can be made suitable for a heavenly realm that is spiritual and imperishable. Paul's rhetorical questions, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? May not be sarcastic, but simply a state of serious inquiry. As we noted, probably the reason the Corinthians were having such difficulty with the idea of the bodily resurrection was that it was contrary to the one of the central tenets of Greek philosophical thinking. Traditional Greek thought divided human beings into body and soul, and the soul was considered to be in the prison of the body. Plato said, oh, a lot of the said, that the body is the prison house of the soul. At the time of death, the soul escaped the body and was free from that prison to inhabit the spiritual realm. So why would anyone want to have a body again and imprison the soul a second time? This is the same type of thinking that made some of the people in Athens sneer at Paul when he broached the resurrection of Jesus. So just well, I'll talk about this again, but so they believe the body is the prison house of the soul. They believe the body was the main source of human problems that it was our body that mainly caused us to do bad things and caused corruption and stuff. And so the soul is sort of uh, spiritual and good. It's the body that the gods in Greek mythology, the gods gave man a body and that contaminates him and makes him sinful. So the Greeks believe that you want to free us from the body and so forth. So Paul runs into this at Athens, Greece, um, he is speaking in uh, verse 31, 32. And it says, at the end there, he says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Remember, this is, uh, he's speaking, the, the King James says Mars Hill. It's it's uh, it's actually a council there. The council of Mars, or Aries. it's called the Areopagus, the, the hill of Ares, the council of Ares. So there's a religious council there that is operating at Athens who that examines people who come in and teach. And, you know, are they, should, are they legitimate or what are they? He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Ah, that's stupid nonsense. But others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. So they had a hard time understanding this if you go back to chapter 17 verse 18 a group of epicurean and stoic philosophers two of the main philosophies of the day began to debate with him when he's speaking some of them, uh, before he actually gets to the council so he's speaking some of them asked what is this babbler trying to say others remarked he seems to be advocating foreign gods you know some sort of new gods so remember in greek Greek and Roman culture they were polytheistic and they often adopted other gods, they adopted gods from Egypt and so forth they they, they were welcoming other gods as long as you accepted the Roman gods the Greek gods so forth and they said this is because Paul was preaching good news about Jesus and the resurrection now what's going on here apparently is uh, in their minds uh, they don't understand that word resurrection it's the Greek word anastasis and in greek uh, all words have gender grammatical gender so that's true in latin and some other languages they have grammatical gender so by their spelling they have either either masculine feminine or neuter it doesn't make any difference whether they are masculine feminine or neuter they all have this grammatical gender and uh, so it doesn't make what it, the word for child is neuter Maybe that's there's that tells us something. I don't know about little kids, I don't know. but the word for children is neuter. But they didn't think the children were ne- were not male or female. You know, uh, the word for night is feminine. The word for word is masculine. So these words have gender, but it's not it's not real gender. It's just grammatical gender. So the word for resurrection is feminine, Anastasis. Most likely, what they thought is that. He's preaching about Jesus and his consort. Almost all the gods had a male and a female counterpart, like Zeus had his wife Hera. In Egypt, Osiris had his wife Isis, so forth. He had a male and female counterpart. And probably what's going on here is when they hear that they're speaking about Jesus, whoever that is, he's some god, and and Anastasis, that's some female god. They're, They're counterparts. So that's what they probably thought he's talking us about some foreign gods we never heard Jesus and Anastasis we don't we don't know what that is but finally when he gets down here and he talks about the end and talks about the resurrection of the dead oh you 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 really you're really talking about the resurrection of dead bodies that's that's the stupidest thing we ever heard you know that's just nonsense who wants a body we believe that you get rid of the body so it's understandable that the Corinthians bringing that into their thinking would have problems with the idea of after you die, Christians are going to have that body again, you know. And Paul's going to have to go on and explain. It's not like that body you had before. It's not just a resuscitation with a corrupt body. It's a new body. It's a, it calls a spiritual body. It's a body that's fitted for heaven. It's a glorified body, as we say. And that's going to make all the difference. Well, um, well, we'll look at uh, just the first introduction here: the resurrection of Christ. It is probably thought by most of us that Paul begins his discussion by setting forth the proof for the resurrection of Christ, since he lists numerous occasions on which the resurrected Christ appeared to numerous believers including himself. Instead, Paul is simply reminding the Christians of the early consensus concerning the preaching on the resurrection of the Christ, of resurrection Christ, and the testimony of witnesses to that resurrection, a consensus the Corinthians were in agreement with. Paul's point that is that if one believes in the resurrection of Christ, which is central to the gospel, that in itself proves that the resurrection of the dead is possible. So it's a little hard to understand how they could have believed in the resurrection of Christ and not believed in the resurrection of the body. But as I say as we read through this there's nothing to say even in these first verses. He just says this is what we preach and this is what you believe. Remember you believe this, you accepted this. So it doesn't he doesn't actually say now you're denying the resurrection of Christ. Um, so I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, they may have assumed, well, they had heard this about the resurrection. That's just a special case. He's God. He's raised in a bodily form. That's something special. But obviously, it doesn't apply to us as human beings, you know. So Paul, they, Paul doesn't really exactly try to prove the resurrection of Christ. You could say there is proof here because that's what was preached and he was seen. But he's just saying here's what we preached and here's the consensus and here's the things and you believed all this. Now, since you believe all this about the resurrection of Christ, then you shouldn't be denying the possibility of your own resurrection in a resurrected body. And so, Paul's going to now set forth uh, this proof of the resurrection. So he's going to say here, in verses 1 through 5, um, Christ's resurrection is essential part of the gospel. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and in which you have taken your stand. By the gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. Well, I think we'll stop a little early here, because if I start this, it's kind of right in the middle, and it'll be it'd be easier if we just uh, kind of pick up here and we can start and go forward with the argument here because it's a tightly wound argument here. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your grace and goodness to us in giving us the Word of God and allowing us to know you, to know your plan, your program. <clears throat> We're thankful for the truths and the direction you give us through the Word of God thank you for our church here and for the message we heard this morning and we pray that you will help us to uh, act on that in an appropriate way thank you for this teaching of the apostle paul as we start looking at the resurrection and we're so thankful lord that uh, uh, we are not miserable no matter what happens in this life we have a glorious future with you in a glorified body, one that's fitted for eternity, and the aches and pains and problems and difficulties will leave behind. So we're so thankful for this great hope, and we look forward to thinking and reflecting on in the days ahead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.